We live in a free country and we are free to do what we want. Actually, we are not as free as we might think. Or in other words, our freedom rests on a kind of a superficial level. When we start to look a bit closer at this thing called freedom, we come to see that we are actually slaves. Slaves of the Gang of Three. What or who this Gang of Three is, I will explain in a minute. Let's take, for example, a statement as this. You are free to have an ice cream whenever you want, right? You either open your freezer and help yourself to some nice Häagen-Dazs ice cream, or you stop at the next shop and get some ice cream. Or another thing, you are free to read the news, the news online any time of the day. As an engaged person, you need to know what is going on here in this country or worldwide. Or another thing would be, you are free to lash out your angry words at the old driver that just hit your car from behind. By all means, in this country, you have freedom of speech, don't you? Or you are free to take part in a demonstration to show your disapproval of troops being sent to Iraq. The government should know about how you are upset about its, uh, its decision. So let's look at the first example. You have the freedom to have some ice cream whenever you want. Well, is this real freedom? And the same could be applied to any other kinds of food. Maybe you are not so much into ice cream, but more into having a pizza, or some Mexican food, or some chips, whatever. So, to have some ice cream whenever you want, is this real freedom? Or is it not just a compulsive reaction to some, most of the time unnoticed, desire, craving or wanting? Knowing from myself, very often I have just been a slave of the gang of three, following any desire or wanting or craving unconsciously and having taken that for freedom or the freedom of choice. Going back to this example, the sequence of events is very simple. First, there is this desire for some ice cream. And this desire might have been triggered by the hot weather or maybe by some ads in a magazine that you were uh, looking through. Or 
could have been triggered by a memory or whatever. And so then, because this desire has arisen in the mind, the mind immediately starts to figure out how this desire can be gratified. And if we are at home and have some ice cream in the freezer, then the body starts to walk almost automatically towards the kitchen. The hand opens the door of the freezer, takes out the ice cream, ice cream, takes out the ball, puts a good helping of ice cream into the ball, and then starts eating it. And so then, the desire has been gratified, the experience is pleasant, and you feel very happy and satisfied. And then, the automatic pilot walks back to the kitchen and puts the ball into the sink or maybe the dishwasher, if you have one. So in this sequence of events, there has actually been very little freedom, but a lot of habitual and compulsive actions. And the same can basically apply to all the other statements or examples that I have just mentioned. So, in other words, being subject to these habitual and compulsive actions means that we are slaves of the gang of three. And by now, you might have figured out who or what this gang of three is. Right. It's none other than greed, hatred and delusion. Delusion is the boss of this gang and he has two very able helpers, namely greed and hatred. If delusion, the boss, didn't exist, then also his two helpers, greed and hatred, would not exist. So if we want to become really free human beings, we need to make this gang of three powerless. As long as they can exercise their influence, we are not actually free, even living in a so-called free country. The Buddha clearly stated that the basic cause for our unsatisfactoriness is delusion or not knowing, not knowing how things truly are. What we unenlightened uh, beings think is real is actually just a very distorted or perverted view of reality. And because this is actually all we know, then we think act and speak on this, that basis. And this heavily conditioned way of behavior has been going on for many years, for many decades, and even for many lifetimes. And no one, that's no wonder 
why it is so deeply rooted. And the result of that is disastrous. We are beset by problems, by anger, grief, craving, disappointment, longing, expectations, frustration, sleepless nights, quarrels, nightmares, and so on. We, have, we want to have things a certain way, to be happy. But unfortunately, the world very seldom matches our view or expectations. And therefore, having views and expectations is a sure way to suffer. <laughs> the world is actually very pitilessly indifferent to all our views, opinions and expectations. And so, making our happiness depend on having our views and expectations met, that is actually madness. And somewhere in the scriptures, I forgot uh, where it is, but I read that unenlightened beings are to be, cons are to be considered as being mad. So here we are, a bunch of mad and insane people. <laughs> but at least uh, each of us is trying very hard to get cured from this illness or from madness. And so the way to get out of this um, insanity or uh, to overcome our deep-seated delusion and to give up is to give up our conventional ideas of happiness. But this is not so easy because the fact that we are deluded makes it very difficult to recognize that we are actually deluded. So, steeped in ignorance, most or many times we are not actually aware that we are ignorant. For those who have become enlightened, for those who have, be, uh, who have overcome ignorance or delusion, it's so obvious that things are as they are, or that they are in a certain way. But for us mad ones, insane ones, it's not uh, so obvious at all. The Buddha knew this, and that's why he was hesitating to teach after his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. He thought that there was nobody who could um, understand what he had discovered. For those who have removed the dust from their eyes, for those who are uh, fully liberated, the Dhamma is clearly visible in this world. 
but it's not so easy to see and recognize for those who have still dust in their eyes, those who are not yet um, fully enlightened. And this is one of the reasons why very, uh, in some places in the scriptures it's said that the Dhamma is actually very deep and profound, hard to see and hard to penetrate. The following sutta illustrates this deep-seated delusion in a quite amusing way. So at one time, the Buddha was teaching the Dhamma to a group of five men. As the Buddha was speaking, one of them fell asleep. One of them dug the earth with his finger. One sat there and shook a, shook a tree next to him. One of them was gazing at the sky. And only one of these five men listened attentively to the Buddha. While the Buddha was giving his, his, his discourse, Venerable Ananda was standing beside the Buddha and was fanning him. And Venerable Ananda noticed that four of them were actually not listening, only one was listening. And so he pointed it out to the Buddha. And Venerable Ananda could not understand how they could be so disrespectful by either sleeping or dugging in the earth. And so therefore the Buddha explained uh, him why this was so. And so the Buddha said, you see, the man who sits there and who is actually uh, asleep, he was reborn as a snake in 500 successive existences. And so in each of the, his existence, he laid his head in his coil and fell asleep. And so therefore, at this present time, he has also fallen asleep. And the man sitting there, uh, scratching the earth with his finger, was reborn in 500 successive existences as an earthworm. And therefore, he also digs in the earth uh, at present. Then the man sitting there and shaking a tree next to him, he was reborn in 500 successive existences as a monkey shaking trees. And so that's why in this existence he is still shaking trees. And the man sitting there gazing at the sky was reborn in 500 successive existences as an astrologer. And so, therefore, out of sheer habit, he still gazes at the sky, at the stars. Then the man, sitting there, listening attentively to the Dhamma, in 500 successive existences, he was reborn as a Brahmin, 
versed in the three Vedas, in their scriptures. And in those existences, he was very devoted to studying the scriptures, to learn the scriptures, to listen to his teachers when they were teaching the scriptures. And so, now in this existence, uh, he is listening attentively to my words. But Venerable Ananda was still amazed how four of these men could not listen uh, to the Buddha, whose exposition of the Dhamma was, as he thought, like cleaving the skin and penetrating to the marrow of the bones. But the Buddha continue, continued to explain Venerable that the Dhamma was not easy uh, to listen to, not as easy as Venerable had imagined it. And after that, Venerable wanted to know why they were unable to listen uh, to the Buddha's talk. And so then the Buddha said, Ananda, they are unable to do so because of greed, hatred, and delusion. There is no fire like the fire of greed. It consumes living beings without even leaving ashes behind it. And after having given this explanation, then the Buddha spoke uh, the following words. There is no fire like greed, no captor like aversion, no snare like delusion, and no river like craving. And so this verse, these words have become a verse which is contained in the Dhammapada. So before long, meditators will come to realize that greed or wanting is one of the strong motivating forces for all of our actions. Wanting this, not wanting that, the desire to do that, the desire to not do that, craving for some nice sensual input, or craving to get away from some unpleasant sensual input. So besides wanting as a strong motivating force, there is its flip side, namely not wanting, disliking, or we know this as aversion, anger, ill will, uh, repression, and so on. Wanting and not wanting are actually like the two sides of a coin. If you have one side, if you have the front side, then you necessarily have the back side. To have just one side without the other, that's actually not possible. At one time, 
some years ago, I was teaching in Czech Republic. And there was a Czech yogi, meditator, who is also a writer. And she uh, expressed this point in a very short fairy tale. I'm going to tell you this one. Once upon a time, there was the back of the hand. The back of the hand did not like the palm of the hand. Therefore, it made an application to the authorities asking to relinquish the palm of the hand. The application was approved. End of the fairy tale. So, the gang of the three, as we have seen, greed, hatred, and delusion. So the first member is greed. The party word for it is loba, which uh, includes all sorts of greed, wanting, liking, craving, attachment, and so on. And the characteristic of loba is explained as stickiness. <coughs> and traditionally in the scriptures, it's explained as just as a piece of meat sticks to a hot iron pan, so does loba stick with its object. An Australian friend of mine, he had been meditating in Sri Lanka. And this Sri Lankan meditation master explained him this sticky nature of loba in a slightly different way. And this Australian friend showed it to me and I want to show it to you. So to explain the stickiness, he put his hands together like this, interlocking the fingers like that, and then with very lively movements showing that it was impossible to separate the hands because they were firmly sticking together. And so apparently this Sri Lankan meditation master went on to show, you can see, Ooh. And apparently this went on for quite a time until the Sri Lankan nun who was sitting behind the master who had translate, to translate was saying, Pante, I think this is enough. <laughs> but anyway, it made a lasting uh, impression on this Australian friend and as he showed it in quite the same way to me, it also stuck, uh, stuck with me. <laughs> Another way to explain the characteristic of greed and how it traps us in the cycle of birth and death is illustrated with the monkey trap. In Asia, in some places, 
they use a very special kind of trap to catch monkeys. And to do so, they take an empty coconut, make a hole at the bottom of it, fix uh, a rope, and then fix the rope to a tree or to a pole. And then they put some sweets into the coconut because apparently monkeys, they also like sweets. After that, they cover it, put a lid on it, and it has a hole which is just big enough for the monkey to put his hand inside. Because the monkey smells the sweets and so goes, sticks the hand inside, grabs the sweets, and having now a fist, is unable to pull out his hand. So the monkey is trapped uh, by the fact that he uh, firmly holds on to the sweets. His greed, desire for the sweets and not letting go of them anymore keeps the monkey trapped. Nothing other keeps him trapped. If the monkey could let go of the sweets, then very easily <coughs> he could pull out his hand and he would be free. Could he let go, he would be free. And this is what the teachers of old tell us all the time. Happiness and peace are not gained by wanting or holding on, but actually by letting go. And Ajahn Chah, the very well-known Thai meditation teacher, uh, he said, if you let go a little bit, you will get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will get complete peace. Letting go, this seems to be the magic word. It can be explained or illustrated yet in another way. I have this stick here. And so, because let's say this is mine and I'm very much attached to it, I want this, I need this uh, to live for my happiness. So I hold on very tightly to it. And because I don't want to lose it, I cannot loosen my grip. Because if I loosen the grip of it, then, yeah. I lose it, it's not me anymore. However, I could hold this stick in a slightly different way, namely turning the hand around like that. And so now I can loosen the grip, I can let go of it, and still, it's still with me. I still can make use of it. Buddha said also, 
nothing whatsoever is worth to be clung to. Not even the most blissful states of happiness, calm or peace, if there is still clinging or holding on attachment, that's not yet it. <laughs> or expressed in other words, Nibbana or liberation is attained by letting go. Letting go of greed, hatred and delusion. And in one of his less mysterious moments, the Buddha actually defined Nibbana as the absence of greed, hatred and delusion. We all want to become liberated or enlightened and therefore we engage in all sorts of things, all sorts of practices. And in our delusion, we think that enlightenment is just another thing that we can get or acquire in the same way as we can get a job or as we acquire a car, some new clothes. We are looking for it very hard, but unfortunately we are looking in the wrong place or looking in the wrong direction. We have to look very carefully, that's true, but we do not have to look for something else out there, but we have to look rather carefully how things truly are. This would be enough to make the gang of three powerless. As I said, the flip side of wanting is not wanting, or aversion, hatred, ill will, and so on. Because we don't like what is, then uh, we react with aversion, pushing away wanting to get rid of. Wanting is like the hand stretching out, wanting things, getting hold of things. Aversion, not wanting, is like the hand making this movement, pushing away, wanting to get uh, it far away from us. And it is said that the characteristic of aversion is harshness or roughness. And the Pali term for it is dosa, which includes all forms of aversion, hatred, ill will, even the slightest irritation, frustration, fear is included as well. In its stronger forms, aversion also becomes a mind-altering emotion, which can have devastating effects on our ability uh, to think or to make appropriate decisions. Incredible, incredible harm and misery uh, can be created through anger and aversion. And so, those are aversion is the second member 
of the gang of three. When a person gets angry, he or she is very quick to blame something else as the cause of his or her anger. Can be the situation, can be the weather, can be another person. Because it seems that the cause of our of the anger is always out there, somewhere. It could be the traffic jam, or the dirty toilet, or the noisy neighbor, uh, whatever. But looking at the situation in this way is based on a completely distorted view of reality. And this is the basic ignorance, or the not knowing, not understanding how things really are how they function. And together with ignorance, very often we get caught in the notion of a self or me. It's happening to me, to myself, to my body. Some years ago, we had a foreign yogi who was practicing in our forest meditation center in Burma. He was of a, of an aversive nature and on top of that he was also very fussy about uh, how things should be. And so things needed to be the way he wanted them to be and when he arrived he spent quite some time of arranging things the way he thought they needed to be. And to get little things that would have been very easy to get in a Western country uh, sometimes proved to be quite a difficult thing to get in Burma. And so he would not get his things as easily or uh, as quickly as he expected it. Sometimes it could take a day or even more to get him a thing that he absolutely needed. And so every time it took a bit longer than uh, he expected it, he got upset and angry and um, uh, blaming that person or that person or whatever uh, for uh, his anger to arise. And after he had been in the center for quite a while already, one morning he came to my kuti and asked me a question about practice. And so I answered. And after that he continued and it was just that he was, um, he was complaining about all the difficult things here and all that difficult thing that caused so much uh, anger to arise in him, in him. Blaming this, blaming that, blaming this person, blaming that person and so on. And I patiently listened uh, to his words and when he finally had finished 
I just said to him, you know, anger is never caused by something external, but anger arises because there is ignorance in the mind. This was not quite the thing he wanted to hear, and so without saying anything more, he turned around and walked away. So ignorance, that's the third member of this gang of three, and as I mentioned, ignorance is actually the boss of this gang. If ignorance weren't there, his two helpers wouldn't be there, they wouldn't be necessary. And so, the biggest concern of ignorance is to be revealed and to be discovered. Because if the things are seen as they really are, ignorance can no longer exist. In the light of right understanding and wisdom, uh, ignorance dissolves into nothing. And the Buddha said that we are ignorant of seeing things uh, in a distorted way. And these are the ways of that we think things are permanent when actually things are impermanent. People see things as satisfying, as pleasant and nice, whereas uh, things are actually unsatisfactory. Uh, not being able to be the base for lasting happiness. Ignorance uh, takes the impersonal nature to be personal, thinking that there is a lasting uh, inherently exist existing entity in ourselves, something like a self or a me, an ego, a soul. And the Buddha also said that ignorance takes the not beautiful and ugly to be beautiful and nice. So these are uh, the basic false notions, seeing um, anicca, not seeing anicca, impermanence, but thinking it as permanent, nicca. What is unsatisfactory, dukkha, we take for sukha. What is actually anatta, not self, impersonal nature, people take for atta, thinking that somewhere there is a lasting entity, a self. And what is actually asuba, not beautiful, uh, people take for suba, to be beautiful. Ignorance, <coughs> delusion, in Pali, it's called moha. And there is another word for ignorance, which is avicca. <coughs> and because it's this 
basic delusion or this basic not knowing, avijja, uh, which is the root of our uh, repeated birth and death, which is the root of our countless existences in the cycle of samsara. And so avijja, uh, ignorance, is also the first link in the chain of dependent origination. As you might know, it starts with avijja, pachya, sankhara. Dependent on ignorance, there arises formations, and so on. And uh, in the end, the result is, thus arises this whole mass of suffering. At the beginning is avijja, delusion, not knowing. And what the Buddha referred to as ignorance or not knowing is not simply not being able to memorize uh, a poem or the inability uh, to learn a foreign language. It's also not about not understanding how to run a computer or not knowing which road to take to go to the GPO. Or it's also not the ignorance that takes Switzerland to be one of the states of uh, the United States. Many years ago, so when I was traveling in Australia, I was taking a bus from Sydney to Brisbane. And I was sitting next to a young Australian woman and uh, she was going to visit her parents in Brisbane. And so we started to talk and she asked me where I was from and so I told her from Switzerland. And a bit hesitatingly she said, well, sorry, you know, which part of the States is Switzerland? <laughs> Although she was not knowing that Switzerland was not part of the States, but this is not the ignorance that the Buddha was speaking of. Ignorance is this basic wrong notion of who we are or what we are and the basic wrong notion of what uh, the world around us is. So it's this deeply deluded view of ourselves and the universe. It's like having never seen a flower, only having seen shadows of flowers we take the shadow to be the real thing. As I said, being steeped in ignorance, it's difficult to know how ignorant we actually are. But Very often we come to realize <coughs> uh, this gang of three through greed and hatred. That's a bit more obvious. This we can detect more easily. 
And so with each moment of mindfulness and each moment of very carefully uh, observing the object, we actually weaken the force of delusion. We might see that the thought is fleeting and momentary. And so uh, we come to see its impermanent nature. We see the thought of not having been there in the first place. It came, lasted a while and then uh, disappeared, not being there anymore. So we see it's not everlasting. We see its impermanent nature. Or at other times when we are mindful, we, we are aware of the stepping pain in our knee. And as much as we want to get rid of it uh, immediately, we have to admit that we have no absolute control over this stepping pain. So we cannot do as we like. There is no entity or um, a place where that had this absolute control. So in this way we come to see the impersonal nature of these processes, the fact that there is no uh, controlling self or me. Or we might be carried away by a very blissful state of mind and then feel disappointed when it suddenly disappears. And so although the experience had been very uh, pleasant and nice, when it has disappeared and we are disappointed, we come to see that even though it was pleasant, the fact that it didn't last was unpleasant or we, are, uh, we got dissatisfied with it, not satisfied. So we come to see its unsatisfactory nature. And so each moment of mindful attention subtracts a tiny little bit of either greed, hatred or delusion. But compared to the huge mass of greed, hatred and delusion, this tiny little bit that has been removed seems almost uh, negligible or is almost not apparent. But if the practice is repeatedly done and over an extended period of time, then eventually it will become visible The Buddha illustrated this with the example of the handle of an axe. So a a carpenter who uses his axe every day um, cannot say at the end of the day how much of the handle had been worn down. But using it every day, then after maybe three months or six months or a year later, looking at the handle, the carpenter can actually see that the handle had been worn down a bit. 
or another example is the constantly dropping um, or the constantly falling water drop which will eventually uh, create a ditch on even a hard rock. And so each tiny bit of greed that has been removed gives room for non-greed to be there or to arise. Each tiny bit of aversion that has been removed gives room for non-aversion to be there or to arise. And each tiny little bit of delusion that has been removed gives room uh, for non-delusion to be there and to arise. And so the day will come when the last traces of greed, hatred and delusion are overcome. Or in other words, then we are fully liberated. That's the absence of greed, hatred and delusion, as the Buddha uh, had put it. And hand in hand with not understanding that things are impermanent, unsatisfactory, non-self and not beautiful, uh, goes to understand goes the not understanding of the Four Noble Truths. As you know, the truth of unsatisfactoriness or suffering, the truth of its cause, the truth of its cessation, and the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And this was what the Buddha talked about in his very first discourse. And actually, in all the 45 years that the Buddha was teaching, he mentioned these Four Noble Truths again and again and again. He didn't get tired of explaining these Four Noble Truths because the understanding of them is so crucial for our practice, our liberation. One day, the Buddha and a group of monks were somewhere, and after they had eaten, the Buddha uh, said that for the day's abiding, uh, they should go to a mountain called Inspiration Peak. It was near Rajagaha, where also the famous Vulture Peak is. So then the Buddha and uh, this bunch of monks walked uh, towards that mountain. And as they were walking towards Inspiration Peak, one of the monks saw a very steep precipice of this mountain. And he said to the Buddha, Venerable, that precipice is indeed very steep. It's extremely frightful. But is there, uh, Venerable, a precipice steeper and more frightful than that one? And the Buddha replied that indeed there was uh, one that was steeper and more frightening. And so then this monk wanted to know what 
that was. And the Buddha said that it was basically not understanding the Four Noble Truths. And uh, the Buddha said, living beings tumble down the precipice of birth, aging and death. They tumble down the precipice of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. So the Buddha was saying, because of not understanding the Four Noble Truths, beings tumble down the extremely steep and frightening precipice of, of repeated uh, uh, births. As I said, the Dhamma is actually visible here and now. It's openly displayed everywhere and all, at all times. It's happening in us and around us all the time, without the break. We don't need to get a special initiation to be able to see or to understand it. If we, look, if we would look very carefully and attentively, we could immediately see and recognize it. And this is like a little star in the constellation of the Big Dipper that I never saw until one day, or actually one night, a friend of mine pointed it out to me. From early childhood, I was very fond of looking at the stars at night. And I knew quite a bit of constellations in the sky, like the Big Dipper, Orion, this big swan, etc. And especially the Big Dipper was very easy to locate <coughs> uh, at the sky. And so one night, as I was looking at the stars with a friend of mine, she asked me if I saw that little star right next to one of the main stars of the Big Dipper. And she pointed out which of these stars it was, and I said, no, I can't see it. And she said, look, look, it's there. You can see it quite clearly. And I looked up again, and I just could not see it. And she said, but look, it's there. I can see it. And again, I looked up, and oh, there it was. I was amazed. In all these years, looking up at the Big Dipper, I never saw that little star right next to one of the stars. And now looking up, it was so obvious, it was clearly visible. So for all these years, although I had eyes to see, I was blind. And so this is the state of affairs for most beings. Ignorance is like a thick veil that prevents beings from seeing what actually is there. And sometimes I think it's not only a thick veil, but actually a one meter thick concrete wall. Needs a bit, little bit more to chisel through. <laughs> 
So by deeply reflecting on the gang of three and the frightening work, a strong sense of urgency can arise. And with that sense of urgency, we can look at our life and maybe become again aware of our priorities. In a way, it's quite a frightening picture and the prospect of endlessly tumbling down this steep and frightening precipice is not very uplifting. So how much longer do we want to be slaves of our ignorance? How much longer do we, do we want to be tortured by the gang of three? Or how many more tears do we want to shed over the loss of our beloved ones? Or how many more lifetimes do we want to go under, uh, undergo excruciating pain? Actually, it's up, to a, it's up to each of us. We are fortunate to live in a time and place where the Buddha's teaching is freely available, freely taught. So actually, we have no excuses for not seriously practicing it. Well, I don't need to tell you because you are here and practicing wholeheartedly. So let's rejoice in each other's commitment to lessen greed, hatred and delusion and to make the gang of three powerless. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.